Nicolas Cage is probably one of our generation's definitive actors. Hello and welcome to Cage Fighting. It's your main man Andy Gillard here. Hope everyone's keeping well in the world right now. Hi everybody, Matt Guy here. Hope everybody is keeping safe and well and have got over their bat frenzy if they've already seen the film. And if not, we're here to we're here to talk you through it. Yeah, there's there's definitely something in the way. Over and over again. <laughs> Hello everyone. <laughs> Yeah, we're, we're here to record a bat pod this week. Um, obviously, you will have heard at the end of last week's episode, it was supposed to be um, Vampire's Kiss, which we have recorded, but then we saw this film and felt that we needed to talk about Batman. So here we are. Um, we hope you've seen it. We'll, we'll avoid spoilers, but I think if we do go into any spoiler territory towards the end of the pod, uh, we'll save it for them, but we'll give you fair warning and there'll be a timestamp in the remarks of the podcast anyway so you know when to drop out uh before we go into that though fellas have we had a good week matthew you are castless now i believe i am i'm cast my god like i don't know how people who like break a leg or like severely break an arm or something like that cope when the cast comes off because it fucking stank <laughs> it's absolutely <laughs> horrible i was so conscious i was like so I, the cast came off i had to go see a doctor i was in the waiting room for about 25 30 minutes until the doctor came in and i was dead paranoid that i got i was like oh man are people gonna like smell this horrible sweaty cast <laughs> basically like a foot has been surgically implanted onto my arm and i've run a marathon and and then i had to get the bus home and i was like this is feels awful <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it feels good to be free, free of the shackles of the cast, so I can drive anywhere I want now. Not that I want to, because fuel's too expensive. But hey ho. I'm thinking how how. I mean, it's on your wrist, ain't it? Really, and it doesn't bend. So what? How can it smell so bad? I mean, how much it's do you just, sweat? It's just sweat. But like, I walked up the Reekin, and I've been on like ten mile walks and stuff to keep active. Hmm. So it's just, do you know what I mean? I'm a, I'm a big boy. I'm a, you know. And you're just pouring sweat into material, so yeah, it is going to ronk quite badly, I'd imagine. Sorry they're, they're... if anyone's eating, like... <laughs> yeah, time. <laughs> I hope it's not your breakfast. <laughs> and the only time I've ever been self-conscious of a smell is that time when I put my head in Dean's fish pond and killed his fish. But that was... <laughs> that was on... on <laughs> that was on top of them throwing cake at me. So I already had cake of a hair. <laughs> And I tried to wash it off in his pond and then didn't think anything else of it. His fish died the next day. Then we went to the pub the next, and and then there was a woman saying, oh, so what's that smell? And then I think it was Goldie or someone else said, oh, it's his fucking air. And it, it, it was really bad. And it, <laughs> did you uh, have like <laughs> algae in it or something? <laughs> Might as well have done. I mean, it, it, you think it, it, it I mean... It was a it was his birthday party, so that we've been down to Britain, and the um, I mean the cake had kind of set. I think that was the problem. <laughs> <laughs> the cake had set in my hair, and then to, it was when it was long, obviously, and then to wash it out, I didn't think it was outside because it was warm. So I was like, "Oh, I'll just put it, I'll dunk it in." Um, 
And did did he not have just a tap in his house? Why right immediately think... the pond? <laughs> we were just outside. I don't know. We smashed while we saw. Put, put my head in the pond and then found it the next day that I'd killed his fish. He was shocked. Oh, well, God. hello anyway, everybody. What a start to the bus. <laughs> um, before, I was originally, I was going to start talking about the Battinson, but actually I think the biggest news going into the film really was everyone was talking about this runtime, this two hours, 49 minutes before the uh, the credits and then 11 minutes worth of credits runtime, and everyone was going kind of apeshit. How do you feel that the the runtime was in real time when you're actually sat there watching it? Do you feel like it was a slog of a three hours? Did you even notice it was three hours, to be perfectly honest? Stu, I mean, you and I saw it Friday. What were your thoughts? <laughs> it felt like a two-hour film. It, it was it was nothing at all. There was, not, there was only there was one moment where I checked my watch because someone was ringing, ringing me annoyingly, and that was it. <laughs> it wasn't to check the time. Because it just flowed so so brilliantly, and it sat through some some dross that lasted for an hour and a half, and it's felt like a whole day. Mm. This didn't feel like the best part of three hours whatsoever. There was, I mean, we we said it weeks ago anyway that if it's a good film, it doesn't matter how long it is because you you won't notice it, and we didn't. But well, I didn't anyway. No, absolutely same. Matthew and I went Thursday night. Um, we went and. Treated ourselves to some IMAX loving, so we had some nice fancy seats. We My did. arse did go a little bit numb towards the end, but I don't, I don't feel like it was a. I don't feel like I felt like I was there for three hours. It, it went to good clip, I thought, because it was mm. so well paced. I mean, bearing in mind, so we were at the seven o'clock showing. So I looked at my watch at one point, and it was ten in the evening. So we were like two and a half hours in. So we were coming into the last kind of ten, fifteen minutes of the film, and I went, "Fuck! It's nearly ten o'clock already." Like that's mad. Um, the first act plods a little bit. I thought it was a slightly slow burner, um, but because of how well the kind of five sixths of the film is from that point onwards it never felt like a slog once i never i never thought to myself god this is really is ram you know this is going on a long time now the, the, i i worried it was going to at the start i thought it started a little slow but um but no the runtime definitely wasn't something that put me off it slightly puts me off going to see it again only because i need to commit like four hours of mm-hmm. a rare afternoon that I get to myself to go see it again. Mm. Um, but, you know, I know I'm going to enjoy myself when I do go again to see it. Yeah, I get that because even though it didn't feel like a three-hour film, it was a three-hour film. Yeah. Plus you've got your half an hour worth of trailers and adverts at the start. So it, it is a commitment to watch it. But uh, as I said, I think the pacing of the film throughout, it was very deliberate. It, there was no peaks and troughs to the film. The way it yeah. flowed, it felt like it was very much like a point I would be coming on to shortly. When we see Batman, he is constantly walking. It's always a steady pace. And I feel that that may have been a deliberate act and why they put they built the film like that. Mm. So it was a constant walk rather than a sprint, a five-minute recovery, another sprint. I thought that Matt Reeves did a phenomenal job on pacing this film out. So it was really impressively done. 
like I mean, was it Watchmen, for example, which is another long ass film which goes on almost as long as that, and that has moments of highs and lows. Um, seeing that in the cinema, and that was a bit more of a slog, whereas this one absolutely was a, a joy to behold. I felt for the, the vast majority of it. Up, so move on to the Battington. I think if we look at the cast, but let's be honest, we've got to start with the main man. Obviously, when he was cast early doors, a lot of people were very negative about it. He'd never really been able to shake that Twilight tag, in spite of probably being one of the more interesting actors in Hollywood. Matt, why why hasn't he had that breakout role to, to take him away from Twilight? Because I think I think the Twilight was so polarizing in the people that loved it, um, and I, I'll get pelters for it for generalizing. But you know, young women, young girls that liked Twilight, everybody hates them, don't they? And rightly mm. so, really, in terms of kind of what their in what their interests are in film and everything else, and um, and it was hard because it was so polarizing. It was everywhere. Twilight was everywhere, and two people of you know, our age, um, when Twilight was coming out and everyone was obsessing over it, you naturally just want to dislike it because it's shit. And the, do you know what I mean? And I think because, you know, in the same way that Radcliffe will always be Harry Potter and, and other things, there are these franchises that are so commercially successful. It's a real hard time shifting the, shifting the focus away from it. Um, and because it was so polarizing as well, I think people just can't, it's, it's difficult to shake that when you think of him you know you ask anybody now you ask like non-film types at all so if i ask my mum who's robert pattinson she'd go oh the the bloke from twilight mm. she'd never say oh that guy from the lighthouse or you know he always in tenet or anything else Do you know what i mean he's just it'll just always be the guy from twilight mm, that's, that's fair i mean when you look at his film oeuvre he apart from your harry potter and twilight everything else is sort of like an art house picture he has pretty much shied away from mainstream cinema. Um, Stu, is that to his detriment, or do you think actually it it leaves it for the people who are properly into quote without sounding too wanky into cinema? It leaves it for those kind of people. Well, I mean, he's kind of. I mean, I haven't seen a single second of Twilight. Don't care. I've seen the lighthouse, and I talked about the lighthouse over and over again until they've until you watched it as well. Um, just because of how great he is in that film, but he's already been in a massive franchise that was everywhere for ages. So I think he's kind of earned his stripes to go and do something smaller, and then go the arty route. Mm. So it's the same thing though. When I was saying again, funny enough, to my mom, said, "Who's Batman?" I said, Pattinson, who is that? And the, the bloke from Twilight. Said, oh, yeah, I know him. Well, you don't. You know, the, you've seen the picture <laughs> of him. Um, but yeah, it's it's one of them. It's, he seems like he can already pick and choose, which is phenomenal, really, considering the, the, the roles that he's had. But like I said, this could be the one where he gets taken seriously at last. If he yeah. wasn't already for Lighthouse. Yeah, I think, as Matt pointed out, people of, of our age and probably of our gender don't really give Pattinson the, ch- the time of day because of Twilight. 
but you're given the time of day because he's Batman. Like it's, it completely mm. takes to an, a whole other level. And I think the reason he can pick and choose is because he's made his money doing Twilight. Like he, he never had to work again, did he? Let's be honest. And and then he's decided to do what he loves rather than just do what he needs to do to pay the bills. I mean, you, re- you remember as well. I mean, look at well from a historical point of view, going back you now about the the so-called reaction to Michael Keaton being cast in '89. And it looks like it was the same kind of thing then. Casting a comedic actor in a role like this, people didn't like it. So, imagine what early early internet would have been like if if it mm. existed back then. It's true. He, he was Mister Mom for crying out loud. People hated him. And yeah, yeah. I mean, what's what's the equivalent to that now? I mean, if you put like, let's say James Corden, but. <laughs> Well, I mean, the equivalent would be casting Heath Ledger as the Joker. Like, we have been through this, again, fairly recently, of someone who was not respected but probably should have been. Mm. And he was in the gay cowboy film, which I think also works against him in, in those terms back then. So I think that's the nearest we've had, especially in, like, the superhero world. So did you think that Patterson actually bought to the role? Was there anything that you were really impressed with that you thought he he brought to it, Matt? I thought he brought believable vulnerability Mm -hmm. because he's not the most shredded and built and muscular bloke. He's not like, you know, he's not weak and frail or anything like that. But I, I think that, you know, Batman takes some punishment in this film and also he's made to look a bit of a twat at times as well. Mm. Um, and I actually think that um, Pattinson pulls that off with some grace and dignity, I suppose. <laughs> like, I, I think he, you know, he's believably vulnerable f- as Bruce and as Batman. And I think that's really important because this is definitely a, um, a, a film that wants you to, feel his story from one arc to another. It's not, you know, he's not an invincible um, legend that, you know, can't be defeated. And, he, you know, he's, there's no mm. risk of it bitch being a Superman story where, where he's, it's never going to be in any peril. And I think Pattinson was convincing in doing that, which which was quite refreshing to see, really. Mm. I've got it in my notes to, to touch on that in a little bit, but I did love the fact that he wasn't the bad god at this point. Mm-hmm. I like the fact that we got a year two story. Like year one stories are always always the same. It's the tragedy, the training, and then he's finding his feet as a hero and just happens to be the first one. We got him where he's been through that and now he's obsessed, but he hasn't got the knowledge of experience. Mm-hmm. And there is something about, and I know he's he's a couple of years younger than us, but he does look like he could be mid to late twenties. Like I, I would believe him as twenty six, twenty seven in this film, mm-hmm. and I think that really helps. Like you do buy into him as this young Avenger trying to make his way in this this new obsession of his. I think it works really well, um, and he was so like you say, he was just so believable in the role. Stu, what are your thoughts on on his performance? I mean, his jawline, especially. That could works. Cut glass, couldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and I think having the um, having the the mask like it is as well, more like um, more like Daredevil than just a, a mouthpiece, made mm. a massive difference. 
I don't know. I, I don't know how or why it, it did make such a difference, but it, it seemed to be because he hasn't got a lot to work with. He's got his, well, he's got his, his mouth and his eyes, really. Mm. Um, but the shots when, when he does focus on him, I mean, I saw someone talking about acting with his eyes. I never, I never heard that before. And it's totally true in this. I mean, it, there's certain shots where you, you can't see like his emotion, but you can just see his eyes. You can't mm. even see his, his forehead or anything. And it's completely believable. It's brilliant. I, I do think he's an exceptional actor. Like He's, he's got an Oscar in his future because I think he's the kind of actor who's got the, the crossover appeal. I think now that he's got a Batman, a mainstream hit that everyone's going to like, but he's also got that indie credibility. Yeah, I, I can see him doing wonderful things in the future. British Leo. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Looking at the rest of the cast, though, because, I mean, we did have a hell of an ensemble. Um, first up, Andy Serkis. Didn't get a lot of screen time, but I think what he did do, he knocked it out of the park. Stu, I mean, I know you're a fan of Andy Serkis being a, a Lord of the Rings fan, so talk to me about Andy Serkis. It's just excellent again. He wasn't Andy Serkis either. That was the that was the good thing about this. He wasn't mm. playing his usual silly like he did in um in Black Panther. He wasn't being his over the top silliness. He was proper. He was more. He was grounded and he was real, and believable. And his accent was spot on as well. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, I, I was trying to think who does he remind me of? Who is this voice? Because it was really annoying me all the way through, and I couldn't I couldn't put my finger on it. And I think it was Pertwee. <laughs> I think that's what it was. Mm, I can from, see that, yeah. Yeah, from Gotham. Um, yeah, I thought he was great. And it, again, didn't steal any scenes, but he didn't need to. He just came and did his thing. And mm. For someone as... Hmm, how do you describe it? As emotive and over-the-top as he can be, to be as subtle as, as he was and mm. measured in that performance, I thought he was wonderful. Mm. Matt, we used to see in Alfred as this old codger who basically is there to tend to Bruce's wounds. Mm-hmm. Here we got an Alfred who was quite happy to get into the weeds with Bruce helping him crack the Enigma codes and remind him of his duties as a Wayne. So we got we got the the old school showing him who his father was, but we also got this this more modern take on Alfred, this one where he's got this history as a, it, it appears that he was like former army or, or something to that extent. Yeah. What did you think of that take? Cause we haven't seen that on the big screen yet. We haven't. I mean, I really liked um, Jeremy Irons Alfred to be fair. And I really like Sean Pertwee's as well, but it's very different. It's that was more comedic in parts and, and, and everything else um, in, in Gotham. I was saying to you on the way home about how camp Gotham as a TV show was in reality. <laughs> it, um, it, not to start with, it wasn't. No. It, it only went that way in the end because people weren't watching it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, you know, very, very early on into the dialogue, there's this tension between um, between Bruce and, and Alfred. Um, you know, there's, there's a line, something along the lines of, are you a Wayne? And it's... You know, there's there's a there's a there's a dislike there. It is almost subservient and master kind of a feel about it. Um, and it's not until later on that we kind of get 
that you know the, the relationship started to build um i think it was uh, again it's because it was something that we haven't seen on the big screen um it was good to see and it was good to see that him having like life in his character so obviously when you've got um the the nolan trilogy with michael kane he has so much dialogue in his scenes um it kind of makes batman look a bit of an uneducated twat <laughs> because <laughs> of course because bale's doing all of the whole playboy batman as well isn't he you're the playboy mm. bruce and stuff like that as well with this so it's like he's getting involved but it's it's it's, it's batman solving the riddles and it's 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 just different, but different doesn't necessarily mean bad, and that's why I think this film takes a few chances in the, in that area, which I think was needed because it could have been very easy to pump out just a normal Batman story, you know, not take any chances. Mm, absolutely, uh, John Turturro, Carmine Falcone. I love John Turturro. He's always the bridesmaid, never the bride, and I, I think that kind of works in his favour that he's never been overexposed. But he's the kind of actor who, you put his name in a film, I'm going to give it a chance because I always think he's exceptional. Stu, you were nodding in agreement then. What did you think of Falcone in this film? I always see him more of a comedic actor as well. Funnily, than a, he's got than it all, a, mate. Like, he's yeah, great. Than, yeah. than a serious one. He's, he's always, for me, he's always best when he's been ridiculous. Mm. Um, but again, for that reason, and not as much as Andy Serkis, but yeah, I thought, again, a different take on Falcon that we've seen in, in the others. And it was complete, every single person, I mean, it's going over repeating the same thing for pretty much everyone because every, everything was believable in this. <laughs> um, but I, I did like how, considering how, how slight he is, the presence that he had. Mm. And every time he was, it was how it was shot as well, but he was a focal point of, in everyone. Everyone in every scene he was in, every room he was in, he was always dominating everything mm. without really doing much. He just had this aura about him, and I thought he was just brilliantly, brilliantly well done. Because I mean, it's like putting, it's like putting one of us there. It's like borderline kingpins, <laughs> and then putting Blake there. It wouldn't work, but with him, it did, and I don't know why. Mm. Matt, what did you think of the interplay between Carmine Falcone and Oswald Cobblepot's Penguin? Because obviously there was the there was a power struggle there between the two of the characters, mm-hmm. with Falcone being the the big man and the Penguin being the one who wanted to be the big man. How did you feel that their interactions went? And obviously, with it changing towards the end of their their relationship, it was a strange one because. <sighs> The, the Falcone that I know of through like the TV show Gotham and everything else is very, very different to this. And that whole arc of kind of um, Thomas Wayne and, and Falcone have been in bed with each other uh, figuratively um, was something that I haven't, because I, I'm, I'm, I don't, I don't know the, the comics. I've never, I've never read the comics. Um, so I, I, my, my, enjoyment of Batman is literally through the games of the, and, and the TV shows and the, mm. and the, and the films. Um, I didn't really feel there was like much from a power struggle point of view, other than I, I thought this was more of a penguin 
being, you know, being a capo more than like a, a challenger for the leadership of it. Mm. Um, so I didn't think there was much. In, I, I didn't sense a lot of tension, if I'm perfectly honest, between the two. I always thought it was going to be something that, you know, when when we get the inevitable power grab, as we always seems to be in these films, at the end of the movie, that would when we'd see the penguin in his kind of full glory, because, you know. Because this is so, I, I, I hasten to use the word realistic, this film. But, you know, because this isn't the penguin is in someone with like, you know, just because he walks with a limp, that makes him the penguin kind of thing. It's mm. not as comical and colourful and, and, and as wacky as that. So uh, I didn't feel there was that much in between them personally. This is my own. Mm-hmm. It, didn't, it didn't jump out at me, if I'm honest. Okay. Obviously, Colin Farrell playing the penguin. I'll be honest, I was more worried about Colin Farrell than I was Robert Pattinson coming into this. Like, I know Colin Farrell as this mostly silly actor. When I think of his role in, like, Scrubs, that's generally how he is. He's this avuncular, happy-go-lucky Irish chappy who's always got a pint of Guinness and, you know, plays on the stereotypes of being an Irish person. Or he's um, Bullseye from Daredevil. Like, I don't see him as a straight role. And I was worried about him coming into this, trying to be this powerful penguin character and thought, I'm not sure he's got the chops for it. I think I was really wrong in the end. I think his interaction when he was dealing with Batman and when he was dealing with Falcone, you could see that it was someone who was trying to deflect a lot, I think. I think if you look at the character, he was someone who was... Some, you could see that he wanted the power, but he didn't have the power. And I think he tried to use that to his advantage to make it look like he was um, lesser than he was. Apart from when he then managed to outsmart Batman with one of the clues, which we won't spoil. But So I really enjoyed Colin Farrell's performance in this. I, I was definitely not expecting it. And like when you look at him, you still don't see Colin Farrell in that suit. And when you compare him to like Jared Leto in House of Gucci to go back to that film again, like you can see the difference in using the suit to create the character and pretending to be somebody else. And I feel that's the difference between acting and whatever it was Jared Leto was trying to do. I mean, like we did say with um, Jared Leto in that and like representation, why was he cast in this role because and and then padded up is there a reason for that he's like i know there's going to be a series to spin off from this is it going to like show him younger when he gets fatter i i've, I've no idea he just seemed, i mean because i'd avoided absolutely everything i didn't even know it was him no um and apparently i've heard a story that he went to starbucks dressed up as the penguin got served, nobody knew, knew that it was Colin Farrell or anything, and yeah, just walked through, went about his daily life as normal. And you wouldn't recognise him, like, I, I've got the poster that we picked up and we went to see it, Matt, and like, I, I looked at the picture and I cannot tell that that is Colin Farrell, it's incredible. Yeah, it's got to be one of the best prosthetic works, maybe ever. Mm, yeah. Um, Jim Gordon was played by Dre- Jeffrey Wright, he's an actor I've always I've always enjoyed his performances. He's another one who's never really been front and centre. 
He's very good in Westworld, which Matt, I know you're also a fan of. Yeah, yeah. It was um, it was surprised because you know the roles that I've seen him in, I've not, I've, I've, I, Westworld especially, where he's quite quiet and contained, and every every word that he says is calculated. <laughs> if you've not seen Westworld, I won't spoil why. Um, but it's it was a role that I, I thought. He, he excelled in some. I thought that was really funny. He keeps referring to Batman as man because he thinks it's his surname, and that's <laughs> kind of, um, which I thought was hilarious. But I thought he was really good. He was, you know, he was. We don't get we don't get kind of the Dark Knight. Um, Batman is on the run thing as much in this, but he's always got obviously Batman's back in this, which is really, and he, he understands the man. Well, he wants to understand the man, and he's like, you know, I think he says a line like, "I've known you for two years now," kind of thing. There's a history there, and mm. I think he come, he lets that human element out more than we've seen in in other iterations of it, of um, of Jim Gordon. So, I think he did a he was he was entertaining in everything in every scene he was in. He never detracted at all, and you know, this is a very, obviously a very clue heavy film. It's a detective story. Uh, you know, we don't always mm. get that in Batman, and his elements of it you know, his involvement in the detective side of it was really fun as well. Mm. Stu, anything to add on Jeffrey Wright? Yeah, just to, I mean, I, I liked him in the, in the Daniel Craig Bond films. I thought he was really good in that as well, as Felix, um, which obviously you you wouldn't watch anyway. No idea, um, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and obviously the uh, excellent narrator of another show that you don't watch, What What If. Um, but yeah, yeah, the whole man thing. I mean, it didn't click till later. I thought he's actually calling him man because it's his calling him Batman, <laughs> and it was it worked really well. Just switching it up, and just like you're automatically the automatic thing is oh they've done a race switch, which doesn't always work, and just doing it for the sake of it. But it really doesn't matter in this case at all. Mm-hmm. It's not intrinsic to the character, is it? The no. uh, Jim Gordon's whiteness in the comic books isn't really a thing. It doesn't, yeah. No. Well, I, obviously, to move on to the next character, which is also a race swapped character, sort of. Well. There is some history of Catwoman being a um, person of colour in the books, but obviously Zoe Kravitz as Selena Kyle. I, I thought this was such a good performance, and I could see so many different iterations of Catwoman in her performance. Going back to like Eartha Kitt, the Anne Hathaway version, even the uh, Michelle Pfeiffer one, there was elements of her performance and her the, the visual look of her where I felt that they took something from each of them. But most of all, the Arkham video games, just her movement. Mm. It was the most feline-looking Catwoman that we've had on screen, I think. And it really played into even just the silly little nods like her drinking a glass of milk. Mm-hmm. And looking after all these strays, just like these little nods to the history of the character that we haven't had in any of the other films before. I thought it was a really, a really good and fresh look at the character that we've seen plenty of times, but we haven't had the depth of. But I think and, we've got depth here. Yeah, and it's what it's what I said to you when we walked out that it reminded me of the Telltale games. Mm-hmm. That, that the whole Catwoman arc and the, their relationship was very much more the first than the second, but it was. Almost there was almost scenes in that that was almost ripped straight off from that game, um, but because it was a mixture, of, like you said, a mixture of everything else. I mean, I think this is probably 
the best, my best favorite Catwoman at all. Mm. I think it just is. Um, the whole Batman best, but we'll get onto that later, I presume. But I think she's out of all of them, even though I think it, um, I think she <laughs> probably is my favorite Catwoman now. And it was, again, really, really well done. Mm. And being a, a, a cat burglar with just a cut out balaclava as well. Really clever. Mm. Small detail, but it was just, like you say, simple but effective. Yeah. Matt, where does Zoe Kravitz sit on your list of cat women? <laughs> oh, gee. There was an element, obviously, of what I said I liked about um, Pattinson's performance. There's an element of complete believable vulnerability about her as well. And that's why her scenes with, um, with Batman are... You know, they're two broken people that are trying to kind of get through and, and, and find their own way and they come together. You know, there's there's always this law of this Romeo and Juliet story, the love that can't happen between Batman and Catwoman and they've got mm-hmm. their intertwined in morals and everything else that's played out really well. I think I think she was really good. She she took she took all the elements that you expect from a catwoman. You know, she's she's sexy as hell when she wants to be in the scenes. She doesn't take any shit when she needs to not take any shit, but she's also, you know, vulnerable at the same time. I think it was a really well balanced performance. It wasn't kind of, it, it, none of it felt forced. It, it felt like there was some real time and effort put into the character. Um, so you, I think you, you got a lot of elements of the personality, which was really, really good. I mean, like, you know, Pfeiffer, the, the pant tightener. Do you know what I mean? You know, <laughs> will always be my favourite Catwoman, but for reasons very different to what from what I got from this film. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was an outstanding performance, really good. I mean, I, I you know, I don't think personally, I think we haven't had a great Catwoman for for a long time. I really didn't like Hathaway's Catwoman, Halle Berry. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm. Um, even the the girl, um, the girl in Gotham had that element of like but she almost looked like she was crying in every scene she was in in the whole show Mm. it kind of like it was too much the other way of being a helpless little girl that needed billionaire bruce on more than one occasion kind of thing and then yeah so i I think she i I think kravitz did a really good job yeah i don't think kravitz ever leaned too heavily into the damsel in distress Mm -hmm. when she needed saving she didn't realize that she needed saving Mm-hmm. And I, I think that worked in the characters um, in, in its favour, really, because she was such a strong, powerful character. And I, I completely agree. I, I think, you know, compared to Anne Hathaway, who I wasn't a massive fan of, I generally like her, but that character isn't brilliant. And the, the Gotham one, I could never get over the fact that that girl in Gotham looks like Dustin Gaetano from um, Stranger Things. <laughs> I, I could never just get that out of my mind and... I, I never really curly hair. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and obviously, finally, Paul Dano as Edward Nashton, aka the Riddler. I mean, we didn't see a lot of his face in this film, but the few scenes towards the end where you do see his face, I think he he's the perfect version or the perfect look for this Riddler, mm-hmm. this nerdy incel almost. I mean, that's basically what he is. Oh, it's all, it, it is. It's a four chan manifestation mm. isn't it of that internet dark web world um the way he like changes his accent and his tone and his cadence when he's on camera or on his youtube or whatever the fact that like here uh, like this is more of his obviously a script writing thing than anything else the fact that like 
the only time he has a lot of confidence is when he's in front of his like thousand followers or something mm, like that. Five hundred. Was it five hundred? <laughs> um was like it was just obviously we didn't get a lot of him visually face to face with him, but there was something incredibly menacing about the way he looked when he was talking and how he chose to speak was um it was good, really good. And I was saying to you, like somewhere out there, Jim Carrey's weeping because like <laughs> it's just it's 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 not right the wrongs of that because there's nothing wrong with Jim Carrey's Riddler. It was just that it was what was uh, just what the tones were at the time. But this was just a perfect encapsulation of what's going on as a social commentary, isn't it? Really? Mm, yeah. Stu, yeah, Paul Dana. So it's all, it's almost a polar opposite of the Jim Carrey Riddler. It's you you couldn't get that far apart if you tried. I mean, yeah, I think there's what I said about Pattinson earlier about the acting with your eyes thing, which is kind of what he had to do as well for a large part of the mm-hmm. film. I mean, I don't think though if if you were clean shaven and you had hair, Andy, then there might be a bit of a Maybe we could do a bit of Photoshop work there. <laughs> wouldn't wouldn't be far off, especially with the uh, similar glasses. <laughs> but yeah, I think it was almost a shock, like towards the end, when you sort of spoil it because it's in the it's in the last trailer. Mm. Um, which again, my point of not watching trailers is absolutely justified in this because it's absolute joke. That final trailer, it shows everything. It even shows one of the end scenes. <laughs> I mean, it, it doesn't tell you the story, but it does show you a lot of the the visuals that. I said that to you, didn't uh, I? Yeah, like, there's is. one scene that I wish when he comes out into um, Falcone's, uh, he comes out the lift, but it's it's really dark. The only light you see is the flares from the guns. Mm. Um, that was ruined by the fact that I'd already seen it in the trailer. Mm. There's a few of those. Just ban them. Trailers for films you're going to watch. Don't do it to yourselves. Um, but yeah, I think he's never seen him before. Never heard of the bloke before. Um, but yeah, very impressed. Oh, as you've got some, the, you've as got some treats to watch, Joe. He's a really good actor. Yeah, I mean, it, seeing it, seeing his performance in this as a, as a nerdy incel as he <laughs> described him. Yeah, he's um, you could. <laughs> You could say he he steals the show because in them interrogation scenes he kind of does, mm. and I like what they did with it as well um, with the the incident. Um, but yeah, yeah, excellent, excellent mm. again. They, they, they got every the casting is spot on throughout. It's, yeah, it is excellent. Even the bit part players of the police officers. Yeah. They've each got their own personality and character that you see, even in their like three, four minutes worth of screen time, they they come out in it and yeah, I thought everyone was really on song. Even the even the crime scene cop, he probably had about four scenes. Yeah. Yeah, he was brilliant. And the twins. <laughs> yeah. Um, so moving on from the acting, what about the aesthetic of the film? One thing I really loved about this movie was the camera work in it. The amount of times that within the scene that the camera shifted focus from front to back to show something or back to front to bring something else in, it gave you this sense of the world being deeper than it is, but also that the story was very much contained within this one area of the world. 
and you don't often see that. One um, example I've got would be in the car chase scene. So the number of times that you're seeing the car moving and then it will change from the car moving to focusing on the mirror, for example. You never get to see more than like maybe five yards either side of the camera. So you don't know where the cars are going. You'd have no idea of the layout of the roads that they're driving around. But you know that it's all going on. It's all going on at breakneck speed. And I loved that. I love this idea of there being hints of a, a wider world, but that doesn't matter yet. Mm. I, I thought the, the camera work in this was really top-notch. I've, I felt it was very claustrophobic as a, mm. as a but, but by design. I felt like it was, you know, if depending on how deep and twattish you want to go with it, I suppose, you could say that, you know, it's a representation of the kind of smog and the scum of the city and how it's choking mm-hmm. everybody and no one can escape it kind of thing. You know, it's got to have been the, the wettest Gotham I've ever seen committed to film. It's yeah. constantly pissing it down the whole time. Mm. And it's so dark and moody and miserable that... I don't even think noir covers it, really. <laughs> um, but that all adds to this feeling of constant, constant dread and misery, I guess. Mm. And the only time that we really get colour is is kind of the baptism of Batman, I guess. Hmm. Mm, yeah, I think you made a good point there when the word you used evoked taxi driver. Mm. And that's very much where this film tried to get its aesthetic look from, I feel. It's got that proper 70s sort of vibe to it. Yeah. Even to the extent, I think, the narration at the beginning, it very much reminded me of Travis Bickle sat in his taxi talking about the scum and skunk pusses in New York. And it, it was. That's, I very much felt like Batman was Travis Bickle, but if he'd have turned left rather than right on a, a bad day. And I think that worked perfectly for this movie. Was this digital or film? I believe it's digital. Because it looks different. There's something different about it than normal. I I couldn't put my finger on what it is. It's not blurry. It's not like out of focus or anything. Obviously it's not, but it looks odd. And I, I don't know why. It just looked... It, like you said, when you said 70s, that's what it reminded me of. It reminded me of... Like a seventies, like bullet or something like that. Mm, yeah, but I don't know what how they've done that. If it's digital, I'm sure I'd read that they run it through like a bleach pass uh, in order to try and like degrade the look of it so that it did look a little bit grainy and not polished as as you would expect for most superhero uh, comic book movies. So, like, it was a, it was very much a choice from Matt Reeves to make it look a little bit shitty, like a little bit rough around the edges, which worked wonders, I, I felt. Mm. The other thing I really liked about this, the horror tropes that they used throughout the film, I think it was, again, I think it was a very conscious effort. And I think that Matt Reeves has got a really good future in horror movies down the line. The relentless walking of Batman, it was very much a Halloween sort of vibe to it. When we very first meet Batman in the the full bat suit, when he's just walking through the subway station, he's not running to save a guy, he's walking slowly, everybody stops. 
and they they know that just him walking is enough to catch them. When he catches up to Penguin after the chasing, he walks to the car purposefully. He doesn't run, even though you know anything could happen. And that's such a trope of horror cinema: the moving shadows. You see stuff moving without seeing stuff moving, such as the the, the scene where he goes into Falcone's lair and she's only lit up by those gunshots. Again, that's another trope from horror. The uh, the notes in the, the, the late motif of his score. So whenever you see Batman, you just get the two notes. And we'll come on to the score in a minute because that's something else as well. But the late motif in that is, again, it's another horror trope. So I, I'm really excited to see what Matt Reeves is going to do when he gets given some, like, Friday the 13th or something because I feel like he's got one of those in him. I always felt like when we were talking about, you know, he calls himself Vengeance for so much, like it's a first name. Like, mm. I don't think he's, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I, is he referred to as the Batman at any point? Like, he's always referred to just as Vengeance by nearly half the people that he's, that he's, mm-hmm. that he's spoken to. And but, but he, but how do I put this without sounding completely off the mark? He's basically a cowboy because he's constantly wearing spurs. Because he's the way the his outfit when he walks, he's he is vengeance in this kind of Western capacity. Mm-hmm. He comes in out of nowhere. He raises hell and leaves, but he does it in a John Wayne kind of way, mm-hmm. where he's completely emotionless about it all. He's a goth cowboy in this, and I've got <laughs> I, and I've got all the time yeah, in the world is. for it because I think it was like. The way it's so much more menacing when someone's not in a rush, like um, No Country for Old Men, for example, mm-hmm. in that way, it's so much more menacing when when he's this hellraiser that just comes out of nowhere. But he, he, he like, the, but he, when you hear him clomping away, I'm surprised we didn't have a glass shaking like the T Rex in Jurassic Park <laughs> because it yeah. was so much more impactful doing it that way. And I think that was really well done the way that they did that. Mm. And the complete opposite to Batman Begins as well, where you just see him in the shadows, but running everywhere. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, if, if that was deliberate, or probably not. Uh, probably thinking too much into it. But yeah, when the, the whole opening opening bit about the shadows and everything, like you said, I mean, it, them thinking that he's there and he's not there. Mm. And as soon as they see the symbol in the sky, it freaks them all out because they don't know where he is. Oh, that was really I, I clever. I love that, yeah. And also, there's two Easter eggs in that, well, one Easter egg. You know the one, uh, the guy who holds up the uh, bodega and he's wearing the, the mask of the mm-hmm. drop mask of the drugs. If you look at what he's wearing, that's the same clothes as what Robert Pattinson wears in Good Times. And the name of that bodega was Good Times. <laughs> so it was, it was a nod to his Benny Safdie film, which is an absolute fucking belter of a movie. So I really liked that. Uh, moving on to the score, Matt, this was something that uh, you said you wanted to mention. I was absolutely blown away. Uh, Michael Giacchino, I believe it was, was the mm. um, uh, the, the producer. Composer. The produ- composer, that's the word. Excellent though, wasn't it? it, it it's very rare for me to listen to any form of classical music or mm-hmm. a score, just in general. I've had it on repeat since... Mm-hmm. It's so impactful. It's heavy metal if it was classical. 
Do you know what I mean? Mm. I haven't been, I haven't enjoyed a piece of music from a film or TV show as much as this since Band of Brothers, the Band of Brothers opening theme. I think he's just, he's, 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 he's incredible. Um, but it does exactly what it needs to do as well. It, it, it's so impactful. So it's just a, just a massive kick in the teeth as a, as a piece of music. Mm. This is exactly what it needs to be. It's, it's, it's it starts off. Scary is not the word. Menacing, maybe. But it starts off with this, like, mm, something's happening, something's happening, and it builds at its tempo, and it builds at such a perfect, in such perfect harmony, that when it comes to the crescendo at the end, it's it's just fucking in your face. And when you're in the IMAX where it's so loud, mm. like, it's ridiculously loud, you're literally, like, it's unbelievable. It just adds so much to the scene whenever it's on. And then it stops and it goes boom. And then it just goes back down to its starting its starting cadence again. It's mm. starting volume. It's really, really good piece of music. Really, really great. And I've, you know, it's something I've listened to a lot since I've seen the film, which yeah. doesn't happen a lot. No, same. I, I love the fact that it for Batman's um music, it evokes the um Imperial March, the Darth mm. Vader piece of music. Because obviously Darth Vader's the bad guy, but he dresses all in black like Batman. Yeah. And he's the coming storm, isn't he, Batman? So I think by channeling that is such a clever move. And conversely, for Riddler, they keep using Ave Maria, mm-hmm. which is obviously a choral uh, religious piece of music, which is such an odd choice for the bad guy. And they even use it in just like his normal pieces, but they do it with a um, a minor tone, I believe, I, I believe, rather than a major. I think it's written in major, but it's they do it in minor to make it seem so much more eerie. And it works because you're thinking it's giving you this. It almost adds history to it because it's a piece of music that is known worldwide. Ave Maria. It's such mm-hmm. a an iconic piece of music that even non-religious people would know it. And by adding it into this film for the bad guy, it gives you this sense of more than. And I think it works so well. Like, it, like Same as you, I'm not the kind of person who talks a lot about the score. Classical music is not my bag. I have listened to that album several times since because it is so good. Yeah, it's like um, Royal Albert Hall cross Nirvana at points. <laughs> <laughs> mm. And... We can't really say, can we, about um, spoilers. But there's Ave Maria, man, and the whole orphanage and the the nuns and again, and that whole that whole side of it, mm. where it leads into something at the end. We're yeah. talking about religious, like if you go religious sects and things like that, where like, the whole signposting of that. Mm. I mean, I've thought about this film more than I thought I, I would do. <laughs> we'll come to ratings later, but I came out thinking, no, that was pretty good. But now I am going to go and see it again. It's got in my head. I don't know how. Space with you. Yeah. yeah. No. Right. I, next thing I wanted to do was talk about a couple of the criticisms of the film, but I think it might get a little bit spoilery. So I think if you haven't seen the film, now's the time to drop out. I'll put a time code in the remarks from when we start talking spoilers and when we stop. So you can always come back for the end. Um, but yeah, so I'll just give you a few seconds to 
pause your pod. Make sure once you've seen the Batman that you come back to, to listen to this part. So one of the criticisms was that it was a lot of bat and not much man. Personally, I liked that it wasn't a lot of Bruce Wayne stuff. I think by giving us a year two storyline, they negated needing to give us uh, Bruce Wayne because at this point he's trying to become the Batman. So that is his all encompassing obsession. And I think it made much more sense. And it wasn't until the end of the film when Batman realises when the bad guy says the line, um, I'm vengeance, back to him, parroting his line, that he realises that he needs to be more than Batman. He also needs to be Bruce Wayne because Bruce Wayne has a role to play in saving the soul of Gotham. Mm. I was always of the... Batman, Bruce Wayne already knows he's Batman. He's internal struggling. He's, he's being Bruce in the first place. And Riddler says as much. One of his lines is, you know, the mask isn't a mask for us. We already know who we are kind of kind of thing. Mm. Um, the more interesting story, story, not action or anything else, the more interesting story was watching Bruce Wayne evolve in this as opposed to like what, what's going on in Batman, the, you know, the psyche of Batman, I suppose. Um, so, for, you know, I think if you go too heavily, it wouldn't have had as nearly as much impact at the end of the film if we'd have had consistent Bruce Wayne all the time. Like mm. the time that we do see him, he's, he's he, like when he's at the memorial, for example, and he's getting out of the car, he looks so gaunt and so almost on the verge of death almost mm. that like you think, who is this pathetic wretch of a man? Um, and if you got more of that all the time, you'd, it, it would kind of take away from the believability of him actually being Batman in the first place because he looks like he could barely like lift his uniform, much less put it on and fight in it. Mm-hmm. I think it was, I think it was a good amount. But I, I said to you, Andy, on the way out, look, look, this was the first Batman film in a long, long time where I cared more about Batman and Bruce Wayne than I did about the villain, mm. and that yeah. never happens. And that's not what I, that, I don't go into Batman to enjoy Batman. I go in to enjoy the villains, and then just accept the fact that I know that Batman will come out on top. I cared about Batman in this. Mm. And because we didn't, we weren't oversaturated with seeing sad, emo, fringy Bruce Wayne all the time. Mm. And also like with the Christian Bale version, we got a lot of Playboy Bruce, which is fun for a little bit, but we got a lot of it, especially like the Dark Knight. It was quite Bruce Wayne heavy, I thought. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of glad that they chose to not do that again that they gave us something fresh mm-hmm. Stu are you happy with the amount of Bruce Wayne we got or, or didn't guess is the case maybe I mean they're kind of closing the name eh it says the Batman <laughs> mm. so it doesn't say the the Mr Wayne does it so I, I loved it I thought it was it was really it was so much better and like you, you said throughout the whole podcast about it being a year two thing as uh, you got to bring it in somehow. Um, Spider-Man Homecoming just ignored all the, the usual uh, Spider-Bite bollocks and how, uh, all the, the usual things that the other two universes that are already done mm. within the space of 10 or 15 years of each other. There was no need for it. And there is clearly no need to do that again for Batman. <laughs> so by doing that, 
we could just get a, a proper film that we wanted to see rather than the same thing over and over again. And even the, the little touches with the eye makeup as well, mm. which we've never seen before, which just looks, as you'd expect, just black stuff around his eyes. <laughs> and not put on not put on perfectly, just smudged on <laughs> like war paint. And then because he's a, a full-on emo anyway, it works perfectly. And that was the Bruce Wayne... It was, it was almost like the, the whole thing about the um, what Matt said about what the Riddler said about the mask. The, mm. the mask of Bruce Wayne was still there behind the Batman, even in that scene, when he still had the Batman eyes without washing it off. Mm. It was really clever. Again, the, this film is way deeper than it's got any... It deserves <laughs> to be. Mm. Another critic um, criticism has been that it is so bleak and cynical... It too often forgets to be fun. Basically, because it doesn't have lame, snarky one-liners every few seconds, it isn't a good movie, has been some critics' opinion on this one. It feels grossly unfair to me to be judging a goldfish on its ability to climb a tree. Like This <laughs> this isn't a, a comedy action film. That, that was never it. So I feel that that criticism is almost a... Bad faith take, if I'm being perfectly honest. And there were a few moments of levity, but not outright comedy. And I I don't want outright comedy. I just want those small moments of a wry smile. That'll do me. Well, there's the screening we were in. There were there were there were a few polite titters of laughter. You know what I mean? There was, and I think that's where I think that's where um, to some people's chagrin. I think that's where um, Colin Farrell's Penguin helped put a tiny bit of sugar into this sour soup that was Miserable Gotham. You know, he 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 gets some of the more entertaining and lighter lines, especially in like his um, when he's tied up and he's you know got to fend for himself when when Gordon and Batman leave and that whole thing. You know, he, mm. he does get a couple of laughs. I don't think it was intended. But was definitely received as the you know the twins when the three iterations of Batman go to the door and say do you know who I am the twins are there and mm-hmm. they're obviously meant to be a bit stupid and there is there are light interjections but it's not a comedy film it never was ever meant to be it's not wacky and it's not colourful so I think you know what you go and this is a thing from the trailer. I think you know what you you're going in for, though. When you I mean mm-hmm. you look at the artwork, you look at everything about it. Nothing suggests that this is going to be fun. Funny, I should say, not fun. Yeah, nothing suggests this is going to be funny. So I don't know why you you get caught up on that. No, I, I saw twenty seconds of the first teaser and knew exactly the tone of this film was going to be. Mm. And if you say that, if you're that stupid that you're going into a Batman film thinking it's going to be Guardians of the Galaxy, then that's all on you. I mean, I'm looking it's... at the poster now, and I mean, looking at I'm, for the, I know obviously people can't see it at home. The world's on fire for fuck's sake! <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, there's nothing fun about this. Could this could be the poster for Constantine? Do you know mm, what I mean? Yeah. Like the pits of hell have opened up, kind of thing. There's nothing that suggests it's going to be a, you know, a walk in the park. Yeah, and and the funny moments kind of landed more because you didn't expect them because of what how grim the rest of the film was anyway. Hmm. It worked a lot better. Because mm, it was different to what yeah. 
a lot of people come to expect from comic book movies. I think a lot of people see comic book movie and automatically assume it's going to be an MCU movie. And it's nice to see that there are other flavours of comic book stuff out there for a change. Uh, one criticism that has pops up a few times, and to be honest, it's one I normally level at most comic book films, is that the third act lets it down. But my problem with third acts in almost every comic book film ever made have been that the it always ends with the good guy fighting a colour-swapped version of themselves in the, as the bad guy at the end of the film, almost in every film. But I love the fact that in this film they didn't do that. What they did is they completely changed it from being a Paul Noir to a disaster movie at the end. They changed the genre for the final act, which you don't see in many films, let alone in many comic book films. It's usually all the bish-bash-bosh throwing cars at each other. But I love the fact that we went from a slow burn detective story to the incels are attacking, the city Mm. is getting flooded the new mayor is, has been shot, shit's about to go down. I loved this complete movement. I don't think that was a weakness. I thought the third act was a lot stronger than almost every comic book film we've seen for quite some time. Yeah, this is probably where we differ a little bit now. I, everything that had come up to that point, I'm not saying it was completely original, like it's the only detective story ever told. However, but we've seen the great, you know, we've seen the great wash of a city and we've seen like genocide stories and we've seen all that kind of stuff like time and time again. And it was, it served a purpose as to be Batman's baptism into him being not just vengeance, but actually the, 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 the saver of people and, and, and that everything else. I, the whole like blowing up the, you know, blowing up the city and everything else, like it felt too close to like, Dark Knight Rises for me a little bit. Mm. It felt a little bit too close to that, uh, and everything that came with, like Bane and his acolytes or whatever you want to call them, and and the incel stuff. It just the issue with it comes around, and the plot point that I said to you about like Riddler getting himself caught and everything, and I thought that would made no sense at the end. And the whole like kind of washing and cleansing the city stuff, I it, I just didn't think it was as cle- as cleverly put together as nearly ninety percent of the film had been up to that point. Mm. Like it was a bit too much of a one eighty for me, if I'm completely honest. I'm not saying it ruined the film or anything as dramatic as that, but it just it kind of came out of nowhere, and it it, it stopped becoming this dark noiry kind of thing because. It wasn't a. It it wasn't so much about how bleak everything is. It just becomes now a saving the day scenario, and that's the film wasn't that up to this point. Um, so it's, yeah, it's not not saying it was terrible at all. It was just um, I, I can see where some people would think that, that it's so tonally different mm. in that last in that last act that it, you know it kind of takes you out of all the things you enjoyed up to that point. I think. Stu, third act. I'm amazingly going to agree with Andy for a change. First time ever. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I mean, my, my main question is, who on earth builds a city below sea level? I mean, come on. <laughs> it, it seems quite silly to do when when 20 vans can destroy the whole thing. Uh, 
Yeah, I know the whole. I know what you mean, Matt, with the whole um, Dark Knight Rises thing because it's. I mean, how many years ago was that? Eight years or something? And it's. I didn't expect it. <laughs> I will say that much. Obviously, I've not seen the trailers. I didn't expect anything like that to happen, and there was never a hint that it was going to go that way. Mm-hmm. So when it does, it was like, okay. So we, we've gone from, we've gone from mm, insert film mentioned later here, to then going to brilliant car chases with explosions and fire, to then okay detective story again, and then to disaster movie. I, I, it was just everything thrown into one, and it worked. Perfectly, and what we said at the start with the pacing of it all, I think it could have thrown all these things into one film. It could have gone very badly wrong. Mm. I, I, I think what I wanted to see, I think what I wanted to see is them explore more around the incel movement and how you know how media is now like it, it's the craziest and the loudest person that gets the most views and attention now. In, in our society, not in the Batman, in, in, you know, than it is actual people talking sense. And they hinted earlier in the film, they had people that were agreeing with what Riddler was doing. They had people protesting in the street, you know, that all of these corrupt people were getting off and they were supporting it. I think I'd have liked to have seen them gone down that route and actually he'd brainwashed the society into believing what he was saying, just like people getting mm. caught up in these mass... You know, you've only got to look at social media during the pandemic, Brexit, left and right, they were bad as each other in terms of kind of like shouting at each other angrily on Twitter. Going down that route and it being more of a social commentary, I think would have been more... I just think it would have added another layer to it than it just being just then becoming another disaster movie film. You know what I mean? They did a really good job of like making this a social commentary than than then just having it as oh they've blown up the walls and now we're in actual immediate peril. It just it was just a bit of a shame and a wasted opportunity maybe. Sorry, Matt. I was just going to say it's interesting you say that because one critic said, and I'll quote this verbatim: "The Batman is a product of this time and place." In other words, a shame that this time and place are so stupid. So they've obviously seen what your point to it being a social commentary, which I completely agree with, but they're saying that the problem is that that stuff is stupid and they don't want to see that. Now, I think that is a terrible piece of film criticism because I completely agree. I think that this film, it's on its its pedestal, is, it's been put on its pedestal, sorry, because of that social commentary that it's got more depth to it than mm. just being a throwaway popcorn film there is much more to it and that's why i've seen it three times and Stu's about to go for the second time there is a lot to this film does it suffer because of its modernity do you think Stu? is the this modern life detracting from this film i wouldn't i wouldn't say so no i think doing what they did with it made it more relevant than ever and maybe in five years when we all live on clouds and everything's wonderful and we look back and <laughs> and this is, oh, do we really behave like this? But I've kind of got a feeling that that's not going to happen. So if people wanted an escape they, and, and a fun old time, then they wouldn't have gone and watched this film anyway, mm. <laughs> just judging by the trailer. So I don't think it's a criticism whatsoever. I think, it, if anything, it's 
it's one of its strongest points that it, it nails it proper bang on. Because mm. for me, the, the two main social issues that it touches on, especially in the third act, is the rise of the incel, you know, the nasty little shit breathers who sit online whinging all day. And also the deconstruction of systems of power that we saw last summer during the some of the I don't want to say riots, but the you know some of the the flare ups that we had across the world that happened. Um, obviously, in the UK, we had the uh, the Bristol Edward Coulston statue being taken down. It's this rebelling against authority. Um, this obviously looked at it from the other side of the coin, so it was taking it as a negative. But I don't think that the modern world is stupid. I think the modern world is in a state of flux. And I think that's what the third act of this film was showing, that there is a, a flux that's going on and people don't trust the people in power. And that, that's a lot of this film is about the people in power lying to people mm. and the small person trying to get their own back. <laughs> I, 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 I loved all the elements of that. I really, really did. Um for all of the for all of Riddler's um, angst and um, hatred against the people in in power, etc., he then sets off a series of events that kills the people he believes have been treated unfairly and everything else, and the whole disaster element of it. It just doesn't. It just doesn't make a lot of sense to me personally. But then again, I, you know, actually, they're just trying to get across that Riddler is flawed. Because why would he, you know, he, you know, he, he gets himself arrested to try and escape from what's about to happen. Well, go to Bloodhaven then. No need to get mm. arrested. No need to intentionally, like, you know, get yourself caught or whatever. Um, and it's not even, you know, I'd, you could say, well, you know, if he wasn't caught, he'd never then be famous as he wants to be kind of thing as well. But I don't know. I just, there was something about that that really rubbed me up the wrong way. I don't know why. Yeah, but he says it though. He said when he gets mad, and it, he, he um, he said it's not, it shouldn't, it was not supposed to go like this. And mm. he stands up, and because he doesn't, he doesn't get roiled, and Batman's not doing as he, he thought he would do. You think, okay, this is unraveling in front of his eyes. It's not going to plan. And then you see everything happen after that. So maybe that's already there. Mm. But but you do have, I mean. All right. If this ended about two hours, what two hours ten or whatever, with him, uh, him being arrested, then unleashed all of his incels, and then the film ended, mm. you're gonna have a very different, different and similar experience as you have now, just without the the chaos at the end. And it would then have been a pure like noir <laughs> noir detective film, where he has got caught, but then ha. There's the rise of what come maybe the court of hell's next, but yeah, I can see both sides of it. For me, I wasn't bothered. I mean, more destruction and CG death will bring it on, obviously. <laughs> but it didn't seem even that didn't seem bad. There was no dodgy effects in that. It, I did think at, at first when he was saying because when he was kind of semi-narrating it, while he over the top saying this is what's going to happen. I thought it was then going to go back and him just say, "Well, no, that's not going to happen." And it, and it was like a, "This is what this is what could have happened," kind of thing, and none of it actually happened in real time. 
and, and so then when he did go to it, he did go to the, the mayor or the mayor to be what she was. Um, and she was being shot. I thought, oh shit, it is actually happening. They are the, destroying the city. So I was a kind of a bit all over the place with that one. Mm. And again, this it, is on. This is watching it once. So yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's it's it absolutely served a purpose. You know, we don't get we don't get the scene, or we don't get the visual of him literally sacrificing himself, going into the water as vengeance and coming out as hope. We don't get that without these scenes. So. Mm. It could have been done a different way, though. If they'd have, really, you know, if they wanted to, it could have been done a different way. Um, but listen, it's, it, these are these are niggles as opposed to criticisms. You know what I mean? Mm. It's not taken away from it from what was a you know a fantastic experience. Yeah. Um, and I think that, like on second viewing, whenever I get a chance to go, I'll see something completely different in it anyway. They're like that. It'll will will we'll jump out completely anyway. So yeah, I just think. Um, I think the third act was just more of some minor annoyance than anything that completely took me away from everything. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So with all that said, what are you hoping to see next from the franchise? Where do you hope it goes? I mean, there were a few uh, Easter eggs that were in the, the, the show, in the film, sorry. So there was mention of, they called him Edward Elliot, but Thomas Elliot becomes Hush. They even specifically write the word Hush onto it. Obviously, there's the Joker at the end. The Long Halloween was referenced several times throughout that. So the whole Long Halloween storyline is about the Falcons, but it's the rise of Two-Face. So maybe they'd go down there. The city gets cut off, so No Man's Land storyline. There's several Arkham mentions and Old Gotham, all of which links to Renewal. And Renewal is a fund that was used by a cabal of people who were running Gotham from behind the shadows very similar to the Court of Owls. There's a couple of 66 nods, but I don't, we'll go down to the campy bright lights of uh, that the era. But Matt, what are you hoping to see next from Reeves and Pattinson? Well, I just hope we don't see, I don't want to go in anywhere near the rest of the DCEU. I need this to be as standalone as possible and contained to a Batman story because the second you put in superhumans into this world, you can it, it ruins it. It completely mm-hmm. ruins it. The second you put Batman or uh, Batman, the second you put Superman or anyone like that in this world, it's game over for me personally. Like it, 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 this needs to be kept away from anything remotely supernatural or superhero as possible, because all of the things that I enjoyed about this, it's it's glibness, it's darkness, um, it's noir elements. That gets ruined by sticking in a proper flying superhero, aliens, everything else. Mm. It needs to stay away from that world desperately. You know, what? Joker, Joker, if he's going to come in, he can't be he can't be this purple and green dancing around Joker either. Like, it, it, it has to be They've got to. They've got to keep the same. He's got to keep it tonally the same. I think. I think it would be really strange if they go down like a proper Heath Ledger painted Joker about it. Mm. That's what I don't want to see. Anyway. Yeah, I think with if they were to bring it into the rest of the DCEU, I completely agree. It would kill it. Like that's one of my big issues with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Anytime there is an issue, why don't the Avengers just come together and stop it for every one of them? And I Off think world. if you do that here, 
they, they always have to come up with some piece of poor excuse. And I feel that that would do the same to Gotham, to the Batman universe. It would just be a case of, well, Superman could sort that out in two minutes, so why isn't he just there to do it? So, yeah, I completely agree. Is there anything that you would like to see in the future? Um, I think I would like to see um, the Court of Owls stuff, really, because you, you you can... What was a really interesting element for me, and something I'd not experienced, because, you know, the games and everything else, is the completely not perfect Thomas and Martha Wayne. Mm. You know, they aren't these absolute bastions of society that they're painted out to be in nearly every other iteration of Batman. So actually finding out if they were involved in, in the Court of Owls or that world or actually who were they being held to ransom by and all that kind of stuff, that creates moral dilemma then for Bruce Wayne and then, then strengthens his story then as why he needs to be better. He has to be better for the sake of Gotham. So I think that could tie really nicely in all the kind of themes that they had started with this film. Mm. In the comic books, the Court of Owls, they do try and break... Batman down by telling him that Thomas Wayne was a founding member of yeah, yeah. the Court of Owls. So that would be a really interesting way of doing it. And I think in Batman Year One, Martha, her maiden name is Arkham. So there's all that side of it all as well. So uh, the obvious um, Arkham Asylum and they said that they have mental issues within their family. So I think there are quite a few ways that they could go with it. Stu, anything that you'd like to see? Going forward, pretty much the same. Court of Elves. He was. I don't think it was done really, really well at all in Gotham in the Gotham series whatsoever. And that that had real promise because we were kind of po- promised that from the start, and it never worked. Um, the same about the, the, um, the Thomas Wayne and Falcone and all that stuff in the Telltale game in season one. Um, you, there's a a point where you, as Bruce Wayne, you can choose to shake Falcone's hand or not. And obviously that then splinters off as them games do into what happens later on. But that again is what I was saying to you when we, when we walked out of this, that, the, that it's so littered with things from, from that from that game. It's unbelievable. Everyone just should go, and they're probably about 10 quid now. Just go, just go and get them. Mm-hmm. Um, a good 15, 20 years worth of fun. But yeah, Court of Elves, more, more corruption, more, more of that kind of stuff. That we see that all the time in Gotham, anyway, because it's a, it's like the Coventry, the Coventry of the uh, the DC universe, <laughs> <laughs> and um, for now one in particular, it's 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 just a terrible place where everyone's as bad as each other, but the way they portrayed it in this, I wanted more, <laughs> even even after nearly three hours, I wanted more of it mm. because they they nailed it and it was spot on. It was almost like you know when he was um when he he was walking through um the, the crime scene with um with Gordon. It was mm. it reminded me of you know the um the scene where RoboCop walks in. The first time you see RoboCop in in the yeah. the, the original, and you only see him from the back, and it's like all the cops just look, just look at him. And then they kind of swarm around and say, oh, what are you doing? You know, it reminded me of that. Yeah. And obviously not like the guy where, he, again, a, a little funny moment that was just a little little giggle, but where he um, said, excuse me, <laughs> and he just <laughs> he just walks yeah. around him. Things like mm. that. But yeah, more, more corruption done properly for me. 
Mm-hmm. Um, not not stuff. I don't want poison ivy and fucking freeze and all that bollocks. We don't need. We've seen that before. We don't need it. So that's what you want to see in the future. But thinking about this film as it is, I want to know where this film ranks in your live action Bat franchise list, and where does Batinson list in your favourite Batman? Matt. Oh god, this is difficult. This is. I came out thinking. This is probably up there as as my favourite, just because of what I enjoy outside of the Batman universe. So I enjoy the macabre and the miserable and the moody and the and and these kind of films anyway. So why why stop with why stop with the Batman? But um, obviously, the I think realistically, for the vast majority of the people, it was, it will be between this and the Dark Knight. Let's be let's be blunt about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like the Dark Knight for the for the villain. I, it was never about Batman in that film, but I love this for Batman, and it's not necessarily about the villain he's up against. It's really, really difficult. Like if I can just if I can just have them as both both first place, they both win the gold, <laughs> then then that'll be absolutely fine. I, I I think I'd need to I think I need to see this a second time to see if it it gives me anywhere near the impact that it had the first time. Whereas I could watch The Dark Knight now, enjoy it from start to finish, know exactly what I'm going to get and still have mass enjoyment out of it. I mean, let's be honest, none of them are a Lego Batman. So it's a, a moot point. <laughs> um, however, for, in terms of Pattinson, as a Batman, it's probably up there as my favourite, if I'm honest, because of, you know, Playboy, Playboy Bruce, um, He's fine, but there's no there's no depth to his character. He's in Playboy Bruce of, of Christian mm. Bale. There's no real depth there in the whole. Where is she? Where, 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 where? <laughs> you know that that was all a bit silly. Um, and like kind of the the I wasn't never really a huge fan of like the hokey the hokier more campier Batman of old. Mm. Like Keaton and the nipples of George Clooney and everything else, <laughs> um, so I think I think Robert Pattinson is probably up there as my favourite. But let's see, let's see what the next one's like, because they've obviously then got to they've got to move ahead with that story of him. Now he's going to be less moody. You would like to think in the next ones because he is now hope instead of vengeance. Will they, will they still be able to kind of maintain the intensity? Of, of Bruce Wayne in the next one, or actually, really become dead annoying as he's now a people person, and we all <laughs> secretly hate people. Stu, what do you think? Um, for this moment in time, uh, for a few days removed from seeing it once, you can rank it side by side because they are so different to each other. This in the Dark Knight, I think, given a few watches, um. I think that's probably where I'm going to land with it, just for that reason. They're, they are they are so different to each other. Um, one's not better than the other one, just because <laughs> people have to have lists. Um, for argument's sake, it is going to be second, because I've seen the other one more. Mm. And it is so weird in the, the terms of a film that you like this. I mean, I'll, I was describing this to people in the pub about, oh, yeah, are you going to see Batman? I went, yes, but... He, if you like certain types of films and you like watching, you, I mean, you could even like, oh, if you watch CSI, you'd like this <laughs> from the detective <laughs> angle. And you probably mm. would like law and order and that kind of stuff. Um, Batman wise, he's my favorite Batman just because he's hardcore. 
and he's the Batman that we've always wanted to see. And having a 15 rating gives us that choice. And now we have him. Bruce Wayne wise, not for me, Clive, yet. He's too he's too moody. There wasn't enough of him. There's now three versions of him. You all older, grizzled, end of the road Batman with Batfleck. You got Party Boy Christian Bale, which is the one the Bat, the Bruce Wayne that we know and love, really. Um this is too much of a departure, too much uh, too dark for me at this point. I mean, it, it obviously, on a rewatch and a subsequent film might change that when he's got more of a chance to develop the character. But as a Bruce Wayne that I kind of associate with, it would be Bale for me. For now. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's fair. I, I think I'm in agreement. Um Oh, don't get me wrong, I loved this film. I got in an argument with Katie on the weekend because she saw me updating my film list. And for the films of 2022, I'll put like my star rating next to it. So I know when we come to do our top five next year, I know which ones I really loved. And I'd put The Batman six stars. And she couldn't grasp why it was six stars. It's like out of how many? And I'm like, well, five, I guess. <laughs> like, but that doesn't make sense. I'm like, but it does to me. Because this is a really good film, like I really, really loved it. Um, but it, it's not, it's not the Dark Knight. I, I think it's got the potential to have a Dark Knight in one of the sequels, um, but I don't think you get the Dark Knight without the um, Batman Begins first. I don't think you could start with the Dark Knight. So for me, it's the second at the moment. And as for my favourite Batman, I kind of agree with you, Stu, to be honest. It's very much a case of this is the Batman we wanted, not the the, the kiddie version of it. We wanted this more grown-up one, one where the the punches actually shatter bones, and that's kind of what we got with Battinson. So I think Robert might be the best Batman that we've seen on screen. Um, time will tell, obviously. We've, we've still got, hopefully, several more films to come with him. So we'll see how that goes. Sadly, we've had a few gremlins on the line and it is just me left here at the moment to say our goodbyes. Before I do that, though, we were going to give you some recommendations. Um, If you enjoyed The Batman, you may also like. Matt's recommendation was going to be the Arkham Knight video game. Obviously, if you listen back to our top five game to film adaptations Matt goes into great detail talking about his love of that one Stu was going to recommend a modern neo-noir classic in Seven the David Fincher and Brad Pitt film obviously most people um, may have seen that already but I think it bears repeating that is a hell of a movie and what a debut from Kevin Spacey Um, obviously things have gone a little bit sideways there with that guy but definitely worth checking out and my recommendation was going to be a book. It will be the Scott Snyder book, which is called Zero Year. Scott Snyder is the writer of Court of Owls, which we've mentioned a few times during this podcast. It's one of his later bat books. It's well worth checking out. It's obviously as it's Zero Year. It's the early days of the Batman. It also features the Riddler as his main antagonist. It's a I love Scott Snyder's work, generally speaking. And this is one of his best ones. So well worth checking out. 
So please make sure you've got us on Twitter at Cage Fighting Pod. It's the question cast up next week, and then we'll be going back to do Vampire's Kiss as originally planned. Uh, any emails to cagefightingpod at gmail.com. Instagram and Twitter are both at cagefightingpod. And please make sure that you're subscribed to make sure you don't miss an episode of this podcast. It just leaves me to say goodbye on behalf of Matt and Stu. And it's goodbye from me, Andrew Member. Be excellent to each other. Oh.